we open up our Bibles and remind ourselves every week that there is a story with no news cycle. And there is a story that will never end. Every other story is a lie. Remember that. Every other story has a termination date. So we remind ourselves every week when we come back to the Bible and we open up our Bible that we are a part of this story by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the King. And this is what we need. This is what we need every time we gather, is to open up our Bibles and to hear what God has to say to us. Well, let's pray, and let's get into our time this morning. Father of mercy, thank you that you can use even chaos to remind us not to be addicted to this world because all we have is Christ. And the man who has Christ and everything else has nothing more than a man who has Christ and nothing else. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our identity. He is our portion. And we thank you. We thank you. Praise be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Spiritual blessings that will one day issue into material physical blessings when he returns. We thank you for that hope. We may we see that hope this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the day before I began my pastorate here at First Baptist of Fisherville, we got a kitten. I started here on May 17th, 2010. We got this kitten on May 16th, 2010, and we named him Chipper after the third baseman for the Atlanta Braves at the time, Chipper Jones. Now, Chipper Jones' real name is Larry, but they nicknamed him Chipper when he was a very little boy because he looked like his father. In other words, he was a chip after the old block. And, and so in naming our cat Chipper, it has really been a blessing for me. It has served me well because every time I call his name, I'm reminded that my children will be, for better or for worse, Chips off the old block. Four of the five look like me. All five are my children. And all five of them will, in many ways, follow me in my patterns of life. The way God designed it. Including my sin pattern. Herman Bovink, in his systematic theology, says these critical words. Just as a sinful deed, when repeated over and over, fosters a sinful, habitual propensity. You see that? Deeds committed over and over develop habits of the heart. So sinful habits can also reinforce an innate depravity in a family. It's important to know. And develop it in a certain direction. Also, that special modification of innate depravity often passes from parents to children. It's not a generational curse. We're not talking about that. We're talking about patterns that are modeled by parents. And the chips off the old block begin to see that as the normal, right? Sin, therefore, manifests itself in different ways and forms in different persons 
families, classes, and nations. There are family sins, societal sins, national sins. And I think what Bavink says here is so critical, so important. And at this point in our text, 2 Samuel 13, David has been forgiven. All of his sins have been forgiven. They've been put away by the blood of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament saints were looking forward to that day when he would come. But his patterns of life, for instance, he was a polygamist, right? And the consequences of those patterns, though forgiven, would cast a shadow over his family. And that's the first thing we see in this passage. 2 Samuel 13, not the passage you're going to hear a preacher preach in view of a call, but a critical passage for us all. David's sensual sins mirrored in Amnon, his son. Look with me in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Don't tell me the Bible validates polygamy. Polygamy always leads to chaos in the Bible. All right? So here, we've seen that David has several wives and... He fathered several children by these several wives. So Absalom and Tamar had Maacah as their mother. And Amnon was David's firstborn son. And he had Ahinoam as his mother. And when we meet Amnon here, we can't help but wonder... Is this the son promised in 2 Samuel 7 that would come and and, and build an everlasting and have an everlasting kingdom? The son of David. We can't help but wonder that. He's the firstborn son. But the text doesn't allow us even to get out of the first verse before we dismiss that. That's not to say that Amnon's hideous story doesn't have something to teach us. For one, and this is important, how far unchecked lust can take a person. Unchecked lust will take you further than you ever imagined you could go. Notice with me in verse 2. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So the text says that he, that he loved her. Of course, we recognize that this was not cruciform love, godly love. It was self-love. Self-love. In a very real sense, you could say it was lust. That's what it was. And and notice in verse 3, but Amnon had a friend... It's his cousin, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. Some translations actually say wise. But you need to recognize here, this is a, what James would call worldly wise. is wisdom 
that is sensual, worldly wisdom. James chapter 3. It's, this is the kind of wisdom where the person is not a conduit of truth, but is shrewd in procuring human approval. This person is willing to do anything to be approved of man. Notice in verse 4, And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So this was his half-sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Brokenness, dysfunction. The world's no different today. This is life outside of the covenant. Though David was in the covenant, sin has damaged him and it has destroyed his family. David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Just oblivious. Or maybe just a a father that does not know how to say no to a, a child. So Tamar went to her brother's Amnon's house when he was lying down out of submission to her father. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she had brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. So three times Tamar begs her brother not to harm her, Because this outrageous thing is not done in Israel. Of course, the irony is this kind of thing had recently been done by the king. Not in an incestuous way, but certainly in a very sinful, sexually aggressive way. She then tries another tactic. Notice verse 13. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. This was likely just a means of escape because there's no way David would have allowed his son to marry his daughter. It was a violation of the very law of God. Leviticus 18, 11. Well, notice in verse 14. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Violation is a word that that speaks of humiliation, oppression, subjugation. This is rape. It's not a pleasant thing to talk about, but if the church doesn't talk about it, then we're going to get it from the world. If you haven't noticed, the world is insane. The Bible is not silent about rape. In fact, Sexual conduct 
is more highly regulated in Israel than any of the surrounding nations. In fact, there are three rapes recorded in the Bible. And in all three instances, a civil war broke out because it was not tolerated. That's not to in any way say that being a vigilante is tolerated either. It just shows you the the perspective on rape. The first one we see in Genesis 34, when Dinah was raped by Shimei. She was the daughter of Jacob. And her brothers went in and, and killed every man in Shimei's city. The second rape is recorded in Judges 19 to 21, where the unnamed concubine is raped by the men from the tribe of Benjamin. In those days, they had no king. They did that which was right in their own eyes, correct? And all the other tribes united and, and cleaned house. We're going to see something very similar here with the first man mentioned in this chapter, Absalom. And I think Absalom is really getting at the main point this narrative on Absalom. And so it wouldn't have gotten that far if Deuteronomy 22, 25 to 27, the law had been applied where a rapist receives the death penalty. That was the wages of the sin of death. In fact, there was no sacrifice for high-handed sins in Israel. Praise God, we're under a new and better way where Jesus Christ did die for people who commit heinous acts. But under the old covenant, death penalty. And that person was judged as cut off and cursed. Now, a lot has been said these days about evidently there's only two kinds of people, oppressors and oppressed. Have you caught those, that language these days? Let me just tell you right now, that is a godless philosophy. It's called critical theory. It is godless, and it's the spirit of antichrist, and I say that because it replaces the gospel. All right? And let me just tell you, Amnon here is a true oppressor. It's his sin. He commits this sin. But you are not an oppressor because you're born with a particular skin color. All right? There are people with a particular skin color, whatever that skin color is, who are oppressors. But you're not an oppressor because you're born with a particular skin color. And you're not an oppressor because your ancestors committed sin all right that's not biblical it's just not biblical this whole notion of reparations is insane and wicked biblically we are held accountable for our individual sins i cannot repent of the sins of my fathers all right you've got to remember that when you hear it every day on the news. It's called critical theory. But here we have a true oppressor. It's his sin. It's not because he's born into a particular group. It's his sin. It's Amnon's sin. And the wrath of God burns hot against the unrepentant who heap up violence and oppression. That needs to be said today as well. When we see the, the violence and the chaos in the streets, abusers will not escape the watchful eye of the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay 
says the Lord. Now, rape was wicked enough. But this was more than that. It was also incest. And again, the guilty was to be cut off from Israel, Leviticus 20, verse 17, and cursed, Deuteronomy 27, 22. With that said, at this point, it's the victim. And this is a true victim. If everybody's a victim today, it minimizes true victimhood. This is a true victim. Tamar is a victim. She's not the culprit, but at this point, she's being treated as if she is the one who is cursed. Look with me in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Four times you see this word, or verb, hated. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. So hated her, this this reveals that his love was actually self-love parading as true love. It was lust. And when he had what he wanted, he says in two words in the Hebrew, get up and get out. And the intensity of his hate, all right, proves how sinister his passion had been. But notice she said, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her, servant put her out and bolted the door after her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. Now this is one who has truly been oppressed. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. You know, that word woman there, you see that? Put this woman out of my presence. The English kind of tames that. The word woman is not in the original Hebrew. Literally, put this out of my presence. And that's a, that is dead on. When you see the opposite sex as an object to satisfy your perverse lust, you are objectifying the opposite sex. Put this out of my presence. And, and though most people don't commit rape and most people don't commit incest, you have to recognize that all sexual sin is of the same family. We have been inoculated to sexual sin. It is so perverse in our, and pre- present in our culture. But all sexual sin is of the same family. And all sexual sin leads here in time. Disrespect and rejection. And again, we see the parallel of David's own sin. David had taken Bathsheba for his own pleasure. He already had many wives. He took another man's wife. And Amnon was guilty of the same in a more egregious way, of course, because it was his half-sister. Again, Sexual sin is all of the same family. He was a chip off the old block. God help us. The second thing we see in this text, starting in verse 20, 
Not only was Amnon a chip off the old block because of his sensuality, we see David's murderous impulse, his murderous sin mirrored in Absalom. Notice in verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? says a lot about Amnon's character that that was the first thing Absalom thought about his brother. In other words, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Amnon sinned his way there. All right? You don't just wake up and do this. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother's Absalom's house. Now is Absalom brushing or sweeping Amnon's sins under the rug? No. Not in the least. So what does he mean here? He is your brother. Don't take this to heart. It's hard to be certain. But most scholars believe... What he's saying here is that Amnon is going to be very difficult to deal with. So you don't need to concern yourself with that. He's David's firstborn son. And David does not discipline him. David doesn't do anything to his son and all of his sons for that matter except say yes, yes, yes. So what I think Amnon is saying, or Absalom is saying here, don't take it to heart. I'll take it to heart for you. Contextually, that seems to be what he's saying. You don't worry about this. I will take care of this. So Absalom is taking this to heart. So does David. Unfortunately, not to the degree... He should have. Notice in verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Of course, he should have been angry. There is a righteous anger. Of course, action on David's part would have required him to put Amnon to death because his offense was subject to the death penalty. It would have also required him to care for his daughter. There's no evidence here that he cared for his daughter. Furthermore, at this point, again, David has been forgiven. There is consequences, though, to our behavior. He has lost his moral capital. He's lost his moral credibility. And it it goes way beyond just that one adulterous act with Bathsheba. He was a polygamist. He was woman crazy. He had no Genesis 2.24 heart. In other words, how could he call Amnon to the carpet when he was guilty of a pattern of this kind of behavior? How could he call his other son here, Absalom, to the carpet either? And yet even with that, that does not negate his responsibility. He's both father and he's king. He has a double authority to maintain justice. In fact, this is going to be one of the great failures of David's life. His failure to properly maintain justice. Not social justice. What's the difference between justice and social justice? Social justice is this impulse towards an equality of outcomes. Behind social justice is socialism. Or even communism. All right? Now what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical justice. And he had a responsibility to preserve and maintain justice. 
as a father and as the king. I think 1 Kings 1.6 sums it up all well. Speaking of Adonijah, but you could apply all of his kids, all of his sons at least, to this verse. In 1 Kings 1.6 it says, His father, this is David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? David never displeased his sons. He said yes to everything they asked for. He never said no. That was his problem. He had never established authority in the home. It's the greatest need your kids have. Learning authority. And as a result, Absalom is going to compete with Amnon for the distinction of David's most grievous son. Now notice in verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now this is an ominous verse. Don't overlook this verse. It's easy just to pass over this verse because this verse becomes the table of contents for the rest of 2 Samuel. We could even say it becomes the table of contents for the rest of David's life. This will consume David for the last 20 years of his life. What we see here in verse 22. Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom's hatred. We have to keep that in mind. It's easy in our culture to hate things with bitterness. But I'm telling you, it has consequences on us when we do that. Absalom's hatred here is going to lead the kind of consequences that will nearly destroy David and his kingdom. Now notice in verse 23. After two full years. So Absalom sits on this for two years. What's he doing? He's plotting. He's stewing, but he's plotting. After two full years, David had, or Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazer, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. That's the first time we see that language the king's sons eight times in this chapter that signals what this is about a promise had been made about a son to come who would be the hope of the world and here we're reading about the king's sons and absalom came to the king and said behold your servant has sheep shearers please let the king and his servants go with your servant but the king said to absalom no my son let us not all go lest we be burdensome to you he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. And then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Seemed arbitrary. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. There is a line in the book, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is fitting here. Miss Maudie said, sometimes the Bible, in the hand of one man, is more dangerous than a bottle of whiskey in the hand of another. Amen? And this is a case in point. The servants should have been shocked to hear Absalom use covenant language to persuade them to murder. This very language here had been used by the Lord when he commissioned 
Joshua to lead the conquest. Courage. Be of good courage. Exactly what he's doing. Be courageous and be valiant. He's using his Bible. But he's using it in a perverse way. Unchecked anger makes us self-serving. That's why we need to be very careful about the words we speak. All right? Because it can just lead to more and more anger. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. All right? And unchecked anger makes us self-serving. We lose our zeal for the glory of God and become zeal for my glory. In this regard, I think Spurgeon was right. Anger does a man more hurt than that which made him angry. Very important point. And notice in verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons, there's that word again, that term, the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. They were fearful that they were next. It's chaos in David's house. And then all the king's sons arose. Man, it's just... It's driving home that even though there's this promise made to David and his son, this is what we're seeing. So just as David had slayed Uriah by sending a servant to kill, essentially put him on the front lines, now Absalom's servant has been told to take up his sword and kill the heir to the throne. Again, like father, like son. Chips after the old block. Again, Amnon, or Absalom's sin here against Amnon, drives home the importance of resting in the promise of Romans 12, verse 19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. That's countercultural, isn't it? It's the supernatural way. It's not the natural way. It's the way prescribed by God as inspired by the Spirit in the text. It is God alone who takes vengeance on sin which is clearly a different message than the one preached today. I must take vengeance because my God is not a God of wrath. See the consequence when you start denying the wrath of God? How can God ever take vengeance on sin? We're seeing it in our culture. The riots we are seeing. We shouldn't be shocked by that. It's the byproduct of of a culture that has denied the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even those who profess to believe, many of them are denying that God is wrathful on sin. If God is not wrathful on sin, there can be no vengeance on sin. Ergo, I must take vengeance. That's not to say that all the riots are truly a response to injustice. Some of the things that they are calling unjust are not necessarily unjust. Again, vigilantes never secure true justice. Never. And that's why vigilante crimes are a sin against God and against humanity. Of course, Absalom could have justified his his behavior here with the argument that David didn't take action. David did not take vengeance. He's the king. And certainly David, like civil authorities today, had that responsibility. He had the obligation to enforce justice. And David 
like some civil authorities today, had failed. But taking justice into his own hands, in so doing, Absalom multiplied evil for evil. We're seeing it right here. So what should Absalom have done? Well, I, thought, I think that he should have brought it to the king. He should have brought it to David. And if David failed in his duty, Absalom should have gone to his brother and appealed to Amnon to repent. And if Amnon refused to repent, he should have contented himself with this truth. Proverbs eleven twenty one. Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. While at the same time caring for his sister. Loving his sister. And entrusting her healing to the Lord. But what he's going to do, he's going to end up putting himself in a situation where he can't even care for his sister. The fact of the matter is that because he took matters in his own hands, he played the role that only God is to play. And it's going to rock this family. It's going to rock David for the rest of his life. Notice in verse 30. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them left. Again, that language of king's sons. Uh, maybe the person who reported this was the first one to flee, and so he, he didn't have the full information. And so this, although this is an exaggerated report, it's a false report, David's response is going to reveal how his chastisement was bringing anguish. Verse 31, Then the king arose, tore his garments, and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, we were introduced to him back in verse 3, said, Let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my Lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said. So it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons. And for the eighth time we see that. They came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimahu, king of Geshur. That's his grandson, or grandfather. He, fle he fled to his grandfather who would spoil him rotten. <laughs> and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Just a horrific story. Someone said to me this week that how do you redeem a story like this? It just ends on a bad note. Why is it here? Crucial question, isn't it? First of all, parents need to take heed. If you care for your children, guard your integrity. Guard your integrity. Proverbs 6, 27, can a man... Carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned. We see from David that those clothes that will be burned include your children. Guard your integrity. Second, there is another level to this chapter that we cannot ignore. It's the most important reason for the chapter, in fact. In fact, it's the main point. Remember 
2 Samuel 7, verse 12. I will raise up your offspring after you. A son will come who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. It's the promise made to David in the Davidic covenant. And I say that's the main point of this chapter because we cannot read the rest of Samuel or the rest of the Old Testament without regard for that promise. And eight times in this chapter, we read the king's sons. The king's sons. The king's sons. All of whom fall short. The ones that are not killing are running as cowards. And yet, a king's son was the hope of Israel. A king's son was the hope of the world. Second Samuel 7 verse 19. This would be the, the Torah, the law for Adam, mankind. This son of David was to be the hope of the world. A world, mind you, that has sexual abuse, vigilante killings, adultery, murder plots, and all that just since chapter 11. We can add to that. And it doesn't give us much hope for the future if God's purpose and our hope depends on sons like these. David is deeply flawed and his sons are worse Both the sons here deserve death. But the father failed to pour out justice on his guilty sons. And if our heavenly father was like David here, remember, David as the king represents the heavenly father. His rule represents God's rule. If our heavenly father was like David here, whose lack of zeal for justice and his lack of care for the truly oppressed is so palatable, it would be hopeless, utterly hopeless. But he's not. In fact, here's the glorious irony. God the Father is just in the biblical sense. But unlike David, who would not punish his guilty sons to vindicate the innocent, God the Father punished the only innocent son of David. To vindicate the guilty. And David's actions almost destroyed the kingdom. God the Father's mercy and gracious actions is how the kingdom is built. It's how he brings in the kingdom. A kingdom that reigns and rules today, no matter what the news might tell you. Indeed, in this son of David, we don't have a mere chip off the old block of the old David. We have one who's of the same essence, the Heavenly Father. We have one who, let me give you a fancy term, exegetes, perfectly exegetes. The Father. That's the word that's used in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Ruling and reigning, incidentally. He has exegeted him. That's the verb in Greek. He has made him known. And this son of David has acquired for his people 
a ceaseless series of blessings that will ultimately and consummately reverse the curse that we see every day. The very blessings promised to and through Abraham's seed. In this son of David, we have in this one person the sum of all those blessings. He is the light of the world, John 8, 12. He is the bread we eat by which we never hunger again, John 6. He's the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. He is the resurrection and the life. John 11. He is the Adam, the last Adam who represents us who are sinful. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He is our peace. Ephesians 2, verse 14. He is our wisdom, our righteousness, and our holiness. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. He's the head of a church that can never be destroyed. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Ephesians 1, 21 and 22. He is the chief cornerstone of the temple of God. Ephesians 2, verse 20. This is the son of David. And from this son of David flows all the benefits of salvation. A salvation, mind you, that will ultimately reverse the curse on this world. Amen? Think of some of these blessings. We'll close here. We're going to take of the table. Praise God for that. It's been three months. Too long. Through this son of David... We have the new birth, the second birth. Regeneration, John 1, 12, which prepares us for the cosmic regeneration to come. Matthew 19, verse 28. We have the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1, verse 7. We are justified. You get that? We are justified. Romans 4, 25. Romans 5, verse 1. In this son of David. We are exalted in this son of David. Ephesians 2, 6. Our sins are taken away forever in this son of David. John 1, verse 29. In this son of David, we have the cleansing of a bad conscience. Hebrews 10, 22. We have reconciliation with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. We have reconciliation with each other. Ephesians 2, 14 to 20. Racial reconciliation does not have to be achieved. It has been achieved. But only for those in Christ. It will never be achieved for those outside of Christ. In this Christ, we have the the death to sin, Romans 6, 6. We are crucified to the world Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. We have victory over the world in the Son of David. John 16, verse 33. We have the deliverance from death and the fear of death. Romans 5, 12. And Hebrews 2, verse 17. We have glorification. John 17, verse 24. That's our future in this Son of David. We have the new heavens and the new earth. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. And we have the restoration of all things. Acts 3, verse 21. In this son of David. Don't you see? 2 Samuel. And this is the point of 2 Samuel. It's showing us a world that needs someone better than David. And it's anticipating him by promises, by pictures, and by problems. What do I mean by that? Promises that specifically speak of this one who would come. Pictures, that is types, who foreshadow the one who would come. And problems that cannot be fixed apart from this greater son of David. And we have him. Luke's 132. Luke 132 says this of Jesus. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he has. And he has. And in his first advent, 
He achieved for us, his people, all that we need. We already have it. It can't be taken away. It can't be taken away. We see nonsense. We see a noble profession like law enforcement being marginalized because of a few bad apples. No one applies that to any other vocation. It's nonsense. It's evil. But what we see in the Word is, cannot be taken away. This is our hope. And in this first advent, we have these blessings that cannot be taken away and prepares us for that second advent when He returns and He'll appear. And in that, when He returns, you know what Revelation 21 says? He will wipe away every te- tear and death will be no more. In this Son of David... And we have the down payment of those blessings from the Father in the Son of David and by the Holy Spirit, which is our assurance and also our hope. And that is true no matter what is happening in the world. That is true. Everything else is a lie. By the way, that's a key reason The table is important to remember that. Let's bow our heads and prepare our hearts for the table. For those of you that are visiting, we we invite you to this table because it's not the table of Fisherville Baptist and it's not the table of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there are a couple of conditions. You must be born again. You cannot partake of something that you have not partaken of spiritually in Christ. You must hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who took our judgment in our place on the cross and was raised from the grave for our pardon, for our justification. And you are a a member in good standing of a sister like-minded church. But let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to take the table rightly. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we, we thank you. We thank you that we have a son of David that's better than anything David could produce. It took a virgin conception to produce this David And we have him, but it took more than an incarnation. It took a life lived in complete obedience to you. It took a death, a sacrifice offering in the place of those of us who are much more like Absalom and Amnon than we would care to admit or even recognize. It took a resurrection. It took an ascension to your right hand. And it took Pentecost. It took the Spirit being poured out that we might be regenerated and we might believe and repent. And that's why we gather, Lord, here at the table to remember this son of David who's better than anything David could have produced himself. Father, before we partake, show us our sins that we need to confess and lay at the cross. May your spirit convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment this morning. Father, thank you for those of us who are in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. The curse has been taken away because Christ took the curse for us. Thank you that 
you judged the only innocent son of David that we like in character to Absalom and Amnon might be brought into your kingdom. Scandalous, marvelous grace. And may that grace warm our hearts this morning and renew our hope, a living hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.